100 Americans are killed by guns every day, according to the Giffords Law Center. While the U.S. has just 4% of the world's population, it accounts for 35% of the world's firearm suicides and 9% of gun-related homicides. Americans are 25 times more likely to be killed by a gun than residents of peer nations. And the numbers only get worse as you segment the population by race. After the Sandy Hook tragedy in 2012, Shannon Watts, like many other Americans, was both devastated and outraged. As tragic reports of gun violence seemed almost a regular occurrence in the news, the stay-at-home mother of five decided it was time to act. The day after Sandy Hook, Shannon began a grassroots movement called Moms Demand Action, an organization that today has nearly six million supporters fighting for public safety measures that protect people against gun violence. I'm pleased to welcome Shannon to today's episode of Justice Matters. Shannon, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us a bit about how you got started with this work. I had never been politically active. I was a corporate communications executive and a mom of five. Had been staying home for about five years. When I was in my Indiana home uh, the morning of December 14th, 2012, and I saw that there was an active shooter situation in a town called Newtown, Connecticut, a place I'd never heard of. And after we found out that 20 children and six educators had been slaughtered in the sanctity of an American elementary school. I was, like every other American, devastated. But as I watched the news and I saw pundits and politicians saying that the solution to this tragedy, to this crisis, was more guns, I knew our nation was broken. And I thought, okay, I'll just get involved like some I'm with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, surely that already exists, I'll just go online, plug in, and get active. And it did not exist. I found some Washington, D.C. think tanks run mostly by men, some one-off state organizations also mostly run by men, and I wanted to be part of a badass army of women. I'd grown up in the 80s when Mothers Against Drunk Driving was so influential in changing our culture and our laws around drinking and driving. and so. I started a Facebook page thinking I'd have this online conversation with other mothers and women. I'm not sure why I thought that because I had 75 Facebook friends. It wasn't like I was a social media phenom, but as type A women do, they found me very quickly. Uh, they began finding my personal information and calling me and emailing me and saying, I want to do this where I live. And we were off and running. So what does off and running look like now? Tell us about the work of Moms Demand Action. Well, we'll be seven years old in December, and we are now not just the largest gun violence prevention organization. Uh, we're the grassroots arm of every town for gun safety. We're also one of the largest grassroots movements in the country, full stop. We have hundreds of thousands of active volunteers like myself. Uh, we have nearly 6 million supporters, 350,000 donors. Not only are we larger than the NRA, but we're beating them in legislative sessions and in electoral politics. So we have definitely not just become Mothers Against Drunk Driving of Gun Safety, but we've surpassed it. What are some of your top policy priorities now? We have three major policies uh, driven by research and data, keeping in mind that we are a nonpartisan organization focused on saving lives. And so the first law 
uh, that we have seen to do that, to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people, is background checks. And by that I mean not just on licensed sales, but on unlicensed sales. The federal law does not require people selling guns as unlicensed dealers at gun shows or online to perform a background check. We look at states where they have strong background check laws and we see guns kept out of the hands of dangerous people. We see fewer gun homicides and suicides. We look at states with weak gun laws and we see the opposite. States are really our petri dish and we know that if this law was applied at a federal level, it would save lives. The current law, which just requires background checks on license sales, has already prevented over three million prohibited purchasers from getting guns. The second law that we focus on is a red flag law. There were about five of them across the country in states before the Parkland shooting tragedy in February of 2018. We immediately worked to pass that law in the wake of that shooting because a red flag law may have prevented the shooting. Tell us what a red flag law is. A red flag law allows, and it depends on the state, but essentially families and police officers to get a temporary restraining order from a judge that will disarm someone who is a danger to themselves or others. And we have now passed these laws in 17 states, 12 just in the last year and a half. It has a lot of bipartisan support. It has been found to impact uh, gun homicides, particularly domestic gun homicides, to possibly prohibit some mass shootings, um, and most effectively with gun suicides. We've seen that, for example, in states like Connecticut, where the family knows that this person may be a danger to themselves and that they're armed, and they can intervene temporarily and remove those guns. The third law that we focus on is disarming domestic abusers. So the federal law of what a domestic abuser is does not currently include stalkers or dating partners. And we know that about 50% of the gun homicides by domestic partners in this country are dating partners because women are waiting longer to get married. So we've gone state by state to broaden the definition of the domestic abuser, but also to put teeth in state laws that remove the guns those domestic abusers already own, and we've done that now in 28 states. Tell us a bit about the NRA and where it's at today, because it was a very powerful organization with a lot of resources and a lot of clout in Washington and around the country. But today it's struggling with allegations of financial impropriety and leadership changes. So where is the organization at, and what do you see its future as? 30 or 40 years ago, the NRA was essentially an organization that taught safety, whether it was hunting or fishing. They were a gun safety organization, believe it or not. In the 70s, they became an organization focused solely on gun lobbying, right? So selling guns, making laws lack so that guns could be sold. And really, that's what they've been doing for the last three decades or so. Uh, they have been insidious at the state and federal level passing this agenda of guns for anyone, anywhere, anytime, no questions asked. Our organization is focused on shining a flashlight on how insidious they've been, but also the fact that they don't act like a nonprofit tax-exempt organization should. They gave over $30 million to Donald Trump's campaign in 2016. They haven't had to say where that money came from. So it's essentially dark money, and there are allegations that they have ties to Russia. They seem to be involved in self-dealing, giving contracts to friends and family, spending money on a wardrobe for Wayne LaPierre, private jet travel, a so-called safe house in Dallas on a golf course. I mean, again, activities that nonprofits don't normally engage in. And so for that reason, and because Americans are seeing how toxic their agenda is, 
They are underwater reputationally and financially for the first time really in decades and it's how we were able to outspend them in 2018 and it's how we were able to beat them this November in Virginia, their backyard. So when you focus on your goals and policy priorities, who are you trying to target? Is it the members of the NRA? Is it elected officials? Is it the average person on the street who has a perception of uh, gun rights, if you will? We are trying to make what used to be the silent majority uh, a vocal majority. We know that 90% of Americans support stronger gun laws. We know that 80% of gun owners, only one in 10 of whom belong to the NRA, support stronger gun laws. Uh, and a Republican poll even found that 74% of NRA members support stronger gun laws. This is not about whether Americans support this. This is about a very radicalized, extreme leadership of the gun lobby and the lawmakers who are beholden to them. I often say, you know, this issue isn't polarizing. It's getting people out to the polls. But we have to get lawmakers to stop doing the bidding of this special interest. And once we're able to do that, uh, this issue can be addressed quickly. So your organization focuses on uh, mothers, the leadership of mothers. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that lens and uh, why you chose that particular angle to address this work. First of all, as I mentioned, Mothers Against Drunk Driving was really influential in my life as a teen, and I saw it as sort of the, the role model for how this work could be done. So I gravitated toward that. I'm a mom of five, and that's how gun violence impacted me at first, which was that I was afraid my kids weren't safe in their schools. Also, women only hold about 17% of the 500,000 elected positions in this country. And as they say, if you don't have a, a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. And to be pragmatic, you know, women are only allowed in this country really to be activists if we're angry on behalf of someone else, like children, as opposed to on our own behalf. I hope that changes. I believe it is changing and will change as more women are elected to office, but we have to be pragmatic and pull the levers of power that we can. I also think it's important to note, you know, I was a white suburban mom when I started Moms Demand Action. I still am. And I saw this issue through that lens at first. And what I've learned so much and what our organization has learned is, you know, this isn't just about mass shootings or school shootings, which are about 1% of gun violence in this country. It's about the daily gun violence in city centers, in rural communities, whether it's homicides or suicides, unintentional shootings. All of it matters. All of it has to be addressed. And that's why we work very hard on diversity, equality, and inclusion, because this is an issue that is incredibly intersectional. So part of your work has also involved working with companies, right? Tell, tell us a little bit about that. In June of 2013, just a few months after I'd started Moms Demand Action, I saw that Starbucks was going to stop allowing cigarette smoking 20 feet outside its stores, even electronic cigarettes, regardless of state law. And we had seen people open carrying. Open carry is legal in 45 states. It's essentially making your handgun or your long gun visible when you're out in public. Uh, it's mostly unregulated in 40 of those states, meaning you don't have to have a training or background check or a permit. And Starbucks had been allowing this. And because they didn't have a policy, gun extremists assumed they supported it. And so they were showing up inside their stores. I called and I said, will you change your policy on this just like you have smoking? And they said, no, they were gonna keep following the laws as it pertained to guns. Uh, 
we were so small, we couldn't even do a boycott. We called it a momcott. Using the hashtag Skip Starbucks Saturdays, we would show online how we were having coffee at home or at a competitor. But even more than that, we used that hashtag to make images of open carry inside Starbucks go viral. It's not a good look for your brand when someone's ordering a latte with an AR-15. Mm -hmm. So it only took three months for Howard Schultz to come out, he's the CEO of Starbucks, and say, guns are no longer welcome inside our stores. Not just open carry, but guns. And we realized, wow, this is a really important lever of power we have because we make about 80% of the spending decisions for our families. And so we've really been able to replicate that at dozens of other restaurants and retailers across the country. So the incidence of gun violence in the U.S. seems to be a very U.S. phenomenon. How does it compare to the rest of the world? And what trends are you seeing elsewhere that give you either cause for concern or cause for hope? Well, first of all, there are about 400 million guns in civilian hands in America. And there are very lax gun laws. So this idea that more guns and fewer gun laws will make us safer, which is the NRA's premise, is an abject failure when you consider the fact that America has a 25 times higher gun homicide rate than any other developed nation. Our gun suicide rate is also much higher. When we look at the states that have stronger gun laws, we see more lives saved. When we look at states that have lax gun laws, we see more gun deaths. And so this is intuitive, but it's also proven by data and research to work. Um, this country has not been made safer by allowing the gun lobby to write our nation's gun laws. The thing I hear most when I'm traveling is nothing has happened since Sandy Hook or Americans don't have the will to change this or this issue will never change. Something we don't really say about any other issue, a social issue, social justice issue, but I think we've bought into the gun lobby's propaganda. And so it's really my job as the head volunteer of Moms to Men Action to travel across the country and explain to people that we actually are winning that something did happen since Sandy Hook, Moms Demand Action happened. We're not just moms or women, we're mothers and others now. And we are passing stronger gun laws. We've passed background checks in 21 states. We've passed domestic gun violence laws in 28, red flag laws in 17, on top of the fact that every year we have to beat back bad NRA bills like guns on college campuses, guns in K through 12 schools, stand your ground laws, permitless carry. Our organization has a 90% track record of beating those bills back every single year, and they come up every single year, the same bills. We've played defense at a federal level. After Donald Trump was elected, and again, the NRA was one of his largest outside donors, the Congress and the president should have had carte blanche to do the NRA's bidding. And they had two priorities. One was to deregulate silencers, which would be a cash cow for gun manufacturers. The other was to pass something called concealed carry reciprocity. And that would basically mean that the lowest level of permitting, so if you look oh, at a state like Alabama or Virginia, would apply to the rest of the country. If you had your permit from there, you could then take it from uh, Birmingham to Boston. And that is their goal. And yet, we have gotten so good at playing defense that they were not able to pass any priority legislation during those entire two years. So, that work, combined with the fact that we're winning in elections, and we're also winning this at a cultural level, tells me that we are just a few election cycles away from significantly addressing and even fixing this crisis, and then focusing on holding the gains that we've made. So you're also on the board of an organization that is looking to help women run for political office. 
Uh, why is it important that women run for political office today? I really think there's a moral imperative in this country right now for people to run for office, but particularly women, because we are so underrepresented. We see the impact of that. The Violence Against Women Act has not been reauthorized. Uh, the NRA believes it contains a poison pill, which would expand the definition of what a domestic abuser is to include stalkers and dating partners as prohibited purchasers. And so that bill is languishing on the Senate Majority Leader's desk. That's in part because we don't have enough women in Congress. We don't have enough women in state houses. Um, I don't care if you run for coroner or sheriff, city council, school board, state house, it all matters and it all makes a difference. And until we get to at least parity, if not a majority, we're gonna continue to let special interests write laws that negatively impact our families and our communities. What are your hopes for the coming year? Well, we are getting ready to go into our next legislative cycle. So every year in January, we sort of hunker down in every single state uh, to work to pass good bills and stop bad bills. That takes up a lot of time for volunteers. But obviously, we're also going into the 2020 election cycle. What I'm so excited about is that for the first time ever, we're seeing the candidates compete to see who can be the best on this issue. It's really a seismic shift in American politics. Guns was really the third rail issue for many, many years. And now, you know, these candidates are talking about it everywhere they go. And they all have put as much energy and innovation into their ideas as they have health care or the economy. And so that is heartening to me. And I, I believe that this will be a top issue for candidates and for voters. And certainly we will be playing big in state and federal elections, just like we did in 2018. So one of the things I've been reflecting on is the need for social movements to be intersectional. And I'm curious about uh, your work on gun safety and mobilizing women in particular, but others as well. How does it intersect with other movements around civil rights or civil liberties in the U.S.? It's a great question. I think intersectionality, you know, for my generation was something that we had to learn as opposed to the younger generation for whom it has come much more intuitively. I think the election... Uh, in 2016 was really important in that way, and maybe that that's the silver lining, is that we are starting to see that all of these issues impact one another and that we need to work together and that all boats rise with the tide when you are working on social justice. I can tell you from the beginning of our organization, we didn't necessarily think about police violence being our issue because we were focused on how do you keep guns out of the hands of dangerous civilians. But what we have come to realize is that police violence is gun violence and it's all related to systemic racism. And so we have become much more involved in that. We've hired a woman of color who focuses specifically on city gun violence, grant giving and research um, and community partnerships. And that has been a really important movement forward for our organization. You know, I was in Boston recently and uh, a woman of color who runs our community partnerships program, she's a volunteer, stood up at a book event that I was speaking at and most of the audience was white. Many of them were Moms to Me in Action volunteers and she kind of looked around and said, I'm so glad you're here tonight, but Will you come when I invite you to a Black Lives Matters meeting? Will you come when I invite you to a city council meeting about gun violence from police? And I think it's so important to remember that it's not just about inviting people in, but it's also 
going and supporting these organizations where they live and work too. Thank you so much for joining us today, Shannon. It's been an inspirational conversation. Thank you for having me. You can learn more about Moms Demand Action at their website, momsdemandaction.org. Once again, this is Justice Matters. I'm Sushma Raman, Executive Director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Learn more about the Carr Center at www.carcenter.hks.harvard.edu and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Alex Geller produced and edited this episode. If you like what you hear, listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.